Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Stina Perkins. Let's talk New Deal. Let's quickly talk New Deal. FDR was the president for so long. 1933 to 1945. I guess, are we referring to his whole term as the New Deal? Mm, no, not really. I think I really just categorize it as like 1933 to 1937, the post-depression program response. Right, and also the post-prohibition response too. Post-fail of prohibition politics for sure. Actually, it was during this time that the FBI even got its name. Previously, it had been the Bureau of Investigation until 1935. It was no longer a minor federal agency. It was becoming a thriving bureau, and FDR made sure the FBI was focused on changing media portrayals of criminals. Last episode, we talked about prohibition criminals like Al Capone. Roosevelt felt that the media had played a large role in sensationalizing these characters and encouraged the FBI to de-romanticize these portrayals. He also wanted them to use their investigative capabilities to detect criminal capabilities. These were his intentions, but the administration's crime control reforms can be looked at as a case study in how most New Deal policies played out. All right, so the TLDR of the New Deal is that the government expanded, a lot of states' responsibilities and liberties were transferred to the power of the federal government, and so crime control continued on its path towards a federal and a national issue. Okay, but we can't really talk about this story without mentioning J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, let's talk about J. Edgar Hoover's politics on women. Oh, word. Yeah, J. Edgar Hoover absolutely fired all female agents and banned the future hiring of them when he was the head of Bureau of Investigations in the 1920s. When Roosevelt came to office in 1933, it was widely believed that Hoover would be fired from the role. But actually, Hoover remained as the head of the FBI until 1972, which is, well, an incredibly long term. At this time, most of the New Deal politics and FBI's crime control stances were really just a PR push. It was a period of redefining what stories should be sensationalized instead of glamorizing the criminals. It was a time of scaring the public of criminal threat and instead a bit more glamorizing of the FBI. But then things took a turn. Mostly, the administration and the FBI became wrapped up in communism, criticism, and the beginnings of World War II. But one of the most controversial contributions of this time period to the war on crime was the shoot-to-kill doctrine. Okay, so in 1934, the country was fresh out of prohibition. It was largely a fail, as we described last episode. And so the administration wasn't as focused on cracking down on drug laws at this time. That had proved ineffective. Though they quickly forgot about this and started targeting marijuana, but that wasn't until more like 1937. In 1934, the administration concerned itself with turning the country against criminals. FDR and Hoover used terminology like America's public enemy number one in order to make the public fear these individuals. The shoot-to-kill doctrine asserted that they could get the criminals dead or alive. Well, yeah, that's where things get confusing. J. Edgar Hoover is on the record publicly stating that the policy of his Division of Criminal Investigation was, quote, act first, talk later, and quote, to shoot straight and get the right man. But when those scenarios actually played out, he testified that he never gave any orders. This really played out in the FBI's quest for John Dillinger. The FBI used Dillinger as a symbol for corruption in America. 
He escaped from jail twice, is said to have robbed like 24 banks, and was involved in gang activity. When he was shot by federal agents in Chicago outside the Biograph Theater, it was ruled a justifiable homicide. The news showed photographs of Dillinger's bullet-pierced body. The special agents who led the attack against Dillinger were named public hero number one. Here's a clip from one of the actual newsreels from this time. And that set the wheels of justice grinding with a vengeance. Half a million of these wanted notices went far and wide. They got him outside this motion picture theater. Wild excitement. Dillinger killed by federal agents commanded by Inspector Samuel Cowley, assisted by East Chicago, Indiana police. The belongings of public enemy number one. Three men couldn't carry Dillinger's collection of deadly weapons seized at various places. He had this automatic in hand when killed. In the video portion, you see a large crowd cheering outside the theater when he was shot at. But let's break down what's going on here. It's not new that police were killing criminals. And it's not new that Americans were celebrating the deaths of their enemies. But what is new is to have an administration avidly orchestrating and calling for these exact processes to occur. There are two competing stories. The media reported that the FBI had ordered that Dillinger be killed, that Dillinger has reached for his gun as police attempted to arrest him, causing them to respond back with shots. So that's what the media was saying. But after some of these facts were debated, the FBI came out and stated that in none of their documents were there ever any instructions to shoot on sight. When Hoover testified in front of Congress, he stated, quote, We have never killed a single one of those men until he has drawn his gun to shoot at one of our agents, end quote. He's claiming his men weren't ordered to kill Dillinger, but were forced to kill Dillinger once he drew his gun. So there is all this confusion. Did he have a gun? Were there orders to shoot? Was it justified? And we still hear that in the media today. Police shoot Americans, and the justification is usually centered around a gun. And race. John Dillinger was a white man, and he committed a lot of crimes, and he was shot to death by agents. These events occurred in 1934, but the legacy of this story really is still present today. Police are acting first and talking later pretty regularly. What do we expect to occur when an administration uses its powerful FBI to lead a campaign that makes Americans sympathetic to justifiable killings, when they make agents heroes? These principles have bled over from capital E enemies to everyday people. It's not just the killing of public enemy number one that is deemed justifiable. It has become a norm of everyday people. Police are shooting at Americans who aren't criminals at all. And now, as long as police claim they thought they saw a gun, they're still usually acquitted of charges. Stephen Clark was shot by Sacramento police eight times last month. Six of those shots were in his back. The autopsy then contradicts the police narrative, which claimed they had to open fire because Clark was charging at them. The police were called on a report of a man breaking into car windows. They chased Clark into his own grandmother's backyard. The officers said they shot Clark because they believed he was pointing a gun at them, but investigators only found a cell phone near his body. So again, we see this narrative playing out still 87 years later. Police shoot, and their narrative doesn't necessarily add up. And if I had to guess, there most likely won't be justice for Stephen Clark. Policemen shoot and kill unarmed black men, and they are not held accountable for these actions. Somehow, they too are deemed justifiable killings. 
But we can look to the Dillinger case as a starting point of the did he have a gun on him controversy. That something about the gun specifically makes any shooting justifiable. I don't believe a cell phone looks like a gun. I believe a cell phone is an excuse to shoot, an excuse to justify the inevitable shoot, with roots in the 1930s shoot-to-kill confusion. Later in the 1930s, attention switched back from crime to drugs. In 1937, we see the beginning of the criminalization of marijuana. A man by the name of Harry Anslinger was really behind this charge. He was the first commissioner of the U.S. Treasury Department's Federal Bureau of Narcotics. In a document called Marijuana, colon, The Assassin of Youth, Anslinger warns the country about a new drug as dangerous as a coiled rattlesnake, which seems like a strange metaphor irregardless, but I digress. In the public address, Anslinger begins by describing the death of a young girl. He notes it was deemed suicide, but he calls it murder. He claims she was killed by marijuana. Throughout the piece, he plays on this fear. He specifically centers his argument around the threat the drug provides to young women. He also tells the story of a young girl who is behind on her studies and very worried. But after she starts smoking, she loses these worries, turning to drugs instead of her homework. There's also the story of a 15-year-old girl who ran away from her home in Muskegon, Michigan, to be arrested later in company with five young men in a Detroit marijuana den. There's a story of a mother watching her daughter die from the indirect causes of a marijuana addiction. He describes that, quote, at least 50 of the girl's young friends were slaves to the narcotic. Slaves to the narcotic. That's the passive tense, insinuating that these girls are victims. We've seen this before. In order to turn the American public against a threat, the protection of women is used as a rallying cry. If these girls are victims, then who's their perpetrator? The drug, but also the peddlers. Peddlers? Yeah, as marijuana becomes criminalized, so does the population of people who uses it who sells it, and they keep being referred to as the peddlers. But these white women are clearly using the drugs, too. Ah, no, Stina, but they are just the victims. They didn't want to try the drugs. They got forced into it. As the story goes, quote, the peddlers preached also of weed's capabilities. Youth, always adventurous, began to look into these claims and found some of them were true not knowing that this was only half the story, end quote. Okay, so blame is taken off the youth. They are innocent, and they don't see the lies they're being told by the peddlers. Absolutely. Now, when it comes to describing who these peddlers are, there's not exact descriptions, but the document blames the spread of marijuana on Mexico, where the document claims it was first introduced to America before it spread widely. And it also blames the spread of marijuana on jazz musicians in New York City. Here's just one quote. Among those who first introduced it, there were musicians who had brought the habit northward with the surge of hot music, demanding players of exceptional ability, especially in improvisation. Along the Mexican border and in the seaport cities, it had been known for some time that the musician who desired to get the hottest effects... I can't even not laugh when I heard this, sorry... The musician who desired to get the hottest effects from his playing often turned to marijuana for aid. Sounds like we're talking about jazz musicians in New York City in the late 1930s. Yes, it does sound like we are talking about black people. Okay, so this document was originally written in the American magazine, correct? Yeah, published in 1937. 
Okay. And it was a public statement scaring the public of marijuana and beginning to criminalize certain populations for introducing it and spreading its popularity. It was getting the public ready for national legislation that would follow. Later that year, Harry Anslinger wrote the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, which was passed by Congress. It wasn't monumental. It placed a tax on the sale of cannabis. But this was just the beginning. Big-time legislation was coming. And throughout the next decade, we see a continuation of this narrative unfold. The bodies of white women continue to be a central framework through which the threat of marijuana is portrayed. In the 1950s, marijuana officially becomes criminalized. Some of the country's strictest drug laws are passed during this time. But there are two competing narratives that play out in the 50s, one of drugs and one of crime. These two narratives are largely separated by race. Marginalized communities are blamed for the spread of drugs, and this is where we see the hard legislation being passed. But as the nation begins to worry about its youth, and maybe we should say the white suburban youth, there is a more progressive push for rehabilitation. Next episode, we'll look at these competing narratives, the tension that plays out between strict mandatory minimum sentences and gestures towards rehabilitating the younger generation. If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What The F's website in the Podcasts tab. Like What The F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina. And this was Blunt History. Blunt History.